Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Freedom of Species, where a show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. Before us, you heard Sally with Out of the Pan. Make sure you check out that show 12 to 1 every Sunday for all things pansexual. And on the show today, I am Nick Pendergrass hosting, and I'm going to be bringing you something a little bit different. We've actually got a listener on the show who gave some feedback on a previous show. Uh, called What Are the Most Effective Individual Actions for the Climate? Uh, That was about five shows ago actually now, but um, the last show I was on. And yeah, that that feedback or that show was on the... We covered a little bit the movie Don't Look Up um, and we also spoke more generally as the title suggests about... um, yeah, different actions and how effective or otherwise that they are for the for the climate. And um, yeah, Sarah had some feedback on that show around the lack of Indigenous voices and perspectives within the movie, but also within environmental and animal advocacy movements generally. So I thought the feedback was really important and I've invited Sarah to come on the show to discuss um, some of that feedback, which is what the show will be today. We always appreciate any feedback on the show. You can contact us via email, which is how Sarah got in touch. That is freedomofspecies at gmail.com. So just name the show freedomofspecies at gmail.com. You can also contact us on social media with any feedback on the show as well. We're on a bunch of the, the usual social media platforms. So we're going to get straight into the discussion and we'll get straight into Sarah introducing herself. Um, I wanted to acknowledge where I am today. So I want to acknowledge the Darawal people um, who are the traditional custodians of the Illawarra region where I am meeting you and where I grew up, acknowledging the stolen lands and that sovereignty was never ceded here. So I'm a student researcher um, looking at traditional transformative justice and sexual violence um i'm a volunteer a sister a partner um i've got a fair few different roles um but yeah i'm a listener to the podcast and i think in in terms of the critique around don't look up um that you provided you and the guests provided and also the um critique of the movie as well it just got me thinking about um indigenous erasure and that was sort of part of what i was um I had sent you. Um, so a bit about me is I'm a I'm a Maori woman, so I fuck a papa back to um, the Hokianga region in New Zealand, which is sort of the north north of the North Island. Um, but I was born and raised here in Australia, um, and I think I think that's it. Great, yeah, <clears throat> thanks. And I, I am speaking from the lands of the Wandjeri people, the Kulin Nation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so you had some feedback on the show and, and yeah, uh, uh, thanks so much for coming on because to be honest, I did talk about that movie for two shows, but I feel like I probably could have spoken about the movie for another show and probably still not brought up those issues you raised. So yeah, I guess we'll, we'll get into the critique. Just one thing I did want to mention actually, just before we get into the critique of the movie, I just happened to see this on Twitter the other day of, I'll put a link to it in the notes as well, but it's, it's basically a graph showing inaction on climate change and it's got sort of the emissions going up and we see like we have like this conference the, the first world climate conference we had the Kyoto protocol and we had the Paris agreement and, all, and yet the emissions keep going up and I think that was one uh, positive thing about the movie or one thing that it really spoke to for those who kind of see like we acknowledge this or most people acknowledge it but yet we're just not taking the actions we need so I think it did sort of it did sort of speak to I think that despair that a lot of us feel uh, that's just one thing I've seen since we recorded that episode that kind of yeah 
sort of made the movie quite relevant in in that sense. Um, but yeah, there definitely were um, critiques going on, which again, I thanks again for introducing to. I've had a look at these on these discussions going on on Twitter and that kind of thing since I spoke to you. But um, yeah, until I did, I, I was just not aware of these discussions going on. So, do you want to talk about um, yeah some of the things you were not so happy about with the movie? Yeah, I think I definitely do. And first off, I mean, my critiques aren't a critique of, you know, you as a as a podcast host and what you're introducing, anyone having discussions in mainstream Australia, let's take, for example, you know, is going to be coming from a colonial perspective. And that's just what we're raised in. You know, we're, ra- we're raised in settler colonialism. And so even those progressive aspects of society, you know, like the environmental movement, um, animal rights spaces are coming from colonial spaces. And so that's not an individual issue. That's just what we're raised in. Um, I even myself tried to look up some um, articles or anything to support the the feedback that I had, and I I couldn't find many. Um, So I think that just demonstrates the complete nature of the erasure of Indigenous voices. And so I think if we go back to what what I said about the the movie in general, are things like um, the Subaru telescope that saw the comet, that that cited the comet, that that is the Subaru telescope on Mauna Kea. Now, Mauna Kea is a very sacred um, mountain on Hawaiian land, and I actually think I saw today or yesterday that it's being decommissioned because the Indigenous people of that area have fought long and hard um, to have the sovereignty of that Mona, of the mountain, protected. And so that came through, which is, which is excellent news. That's actually going to be decommissioned by the end of the year. Um, I also want to guess I make clear from, from my position, I'm not, I know I, I use the word Indigenous. We're not a monolith. We don't all have one thought or anything like that. So I'm purely coming at this from my own perspective. Um, but I think that the things that we were seeing in Don't Look Up was the positioning of white, very rich, very middle-class ways of dealing with climate change um, or the comet, if, you know, of, um, of the comet coming towards Earth. And, you know, love Leonardo DiCaprio for, for all he does, but that's, that's what he's giving. That's what, that's what the solutions and things that he's going to come up with are from his position as a very um, wealthy, very privileged white man. Um, and I personally just think it's past time you know we really need to leave that behind and start looking to things that have existed that have been here um knowledge that's been around for generate generations you know for hundreds of years um i think i think we'll get into this as we're talking but one of the great things about decolonizing these spaces and actually starting to center indigenous knowledge is we don't need to reinvent the wheel we don't need to come up with new strategies there is so much out there so many ways of knowing and existing with our environment um, that has already been recorded that we already have um, frameworks alternative frameworks that we can work with does that make sense absolutely yeah yeah Mm, um yeah, sorry. Did you want to respond to any of that? I could. I sort of feel like I get off on a tangent, and I just yeah. start. <laughs> yeah, no, no, definitely. And yeah, I did actually find because I again, um, you passed on that um, email feedback, and I just was, uh, yeah, I, I had no idea about the telescope issue. I just like put that into Google, and the first thing that came up was a a Twitter thread. Um, someone on Twitter um, at U A H I K E A, um, who's an assistant professor of Indigenous politics um yeah um was was tweeting about that as well um settler colonialism can't stop capitalism from killing us um yeah and made that point um about the telescope um and yeah concealing that fact so yeah there were were definitely those discussions going on on twitter and i did actually find quite a bit more just all i'd searched up on twitter was um hashtag don't look up an indigenous and and there were lots of people who were raising those critiques about the movie but also um sort of using that as an opportunity to talk about those broader issues that um similar to what you've raised there of the sort of the erasure of indigenous voices within discussions around climate change as well um and another thing 
thing which I saw just from those discussions that were going on um, was, again, something I didn't particular, particularly make note of when I first saw it, but there's the... Um, there's the final scene of the movie, um, which, uh, again, we're kind of... We're not going to say too much about the individual things, but I guess like a bit of a spoiler alert, I guess, for the movie for those who haven't seen it. Um, but, yeah, when things are, you know, reaching the um, ap- apocalyptic end of the movie, there's sort of one um, Indigenous person at the end. There's a scene that... I'm not sure if you if that scene stood out to you as well, the, the person who's... Um, yeah, they're sort of beating a drum, I believe, at the end of the movie. Did you mm. did you notice that scene? That I actually something... can't recall that no. section, no. No, so there was, um, yeah, quite a few people made mention of that. Um, and, yeah, uh, someone tweeted, um, yeah, imagine if Indigenous peoples were included throughout Don't Look Up instead of being tokenised at the end. So it was just sort of this one flash of this one Indigenous person um, yeah, just sort of beating a drum as all the, you know, uh, yeah, the um, comments were falling and, and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, there definitely were those discussions um, mentioned. But, um, oh, yeah, yeah, so th- there was another person, um, David Shorter, who's a um, writer and involved the UCLA and made the point that um, – the only mention of Indigenous people, Indigenous presence in Don't Look Up are in montages. Um, and so there was this, yeah, there's the sort of montage scene at the end and that was the only just a brief kind of flash. But I guess there was no discussion on Indigenous knowledge to actually solve solve the issue in the first place. It was just this sort of acknowledgement or very token mention at the end. And there's so much in what you've just said that speaks to the power relationships between the colonizers and colonized and that tokenism the tokenism that comes through in that you know I'm thinking just when you were speaking I'm thinking of that western environmental movement of the western conservation model rather um, that came out of the 1970s you know of separating conserving land and separating humans and nature that's how we conserve um nature so that's when we get things like national parks and 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 stuff like that and the reality is is that we indigenous people have existed for a long long time with the land you know i'm quoting um a maori man nick um mike smith rather and he says you know we aren't joining into the environmental movement we don't come into the environmental movement we are the environment we are of the environment itself. We are made up of it. It governs up. It governs us, and we have to live in harmony with it. And I think that we've seen that far too often. You know, sorry, I'm jumping from thing to thing, but we 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 end up coming with that white savior narrative of um, apocalypse, of feeling bad, of looking at dying cultures. I'm thinking of, you know, Pacifica nations when we look to them and we think, oh, look, they're climate refugees, you know, that's not helpful. Pacifica people do not want to be labeled as climate refugees. They want help because they're, they're the first, um, some of the first nations being impacted directly by climate change. You know, they're losing their ancestral lands with rising sea levels. And so that narrative that we get with, the white saviour, like, oh, well, look at look at all the apocalypse that's coming and look at all the death and destruction and, oh, well, so sad. Like what uh, us humans have really, um, really cooked the earth, haven't we? You know, it's not helpful um, and we don't need more of that conversation. We need things like thinking of sovereignty and thinking of respect and thinking of the power structures as well. It, I think it all does come back to um, the power of of whose voices get listened to and what frameworks get adopted and what values as well um, we centre, which obviously in Australia is not Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander values. Yeah, yeah, and that was definitely uh, one of the discussions I was seeing going on just from looking at some of those discussions uh, going on on Twitter after the movie, again, after I got that feedback from you and, yeah, a lot of people saying that, yeah, as you mentioned, Indigenous peoples have already lived through apocalypse, through destructions of lands and, and all the other issues um, with colonialism. 
We'll be back with more Freedom of Species after this community announcement. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. Welcome back to Freedom of Species, bringing you animal advocacy on the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. Today on the show, I am joined by Sarah, a listener of the show, discussing uh, Indigenous perspectives on the non-human world and how Indigenous knowledge can benefit uh, environmental and animal rights movements. So we'll get straight back into this discussion. I wanted to just bring in, again, some things from doing some reading recently, but also some other things I've come across in the past as well. And, um, yeah, you mentioned being involved in the um, academic space yourself, and, and I'm involved in that, that space as well, and specifically around um, researching humans' relationships with other animals. And just one article I, I came across a while ago from um, Zoe Todd, or Zoe Todd. Um, she's an Indigenous um, Canadian scholar, Turtle Island, um, and was talking about um, yeah, like a lack of acknowledgement of Indigenous voices kind of within that area of study that I'm in and that there's this um, what's often called the, hopefully this isn't too like academic for some people, but uh, the ontological term, which which is basically talking about the way in which uh, in like a lot of social science, for example, I'm in sociology, but there's like, we've got the, the you know, the human world, which is subjective. And then we've got the non-human world, including other animals, which is... Um, Ob- just objects it's not you know doesn't have its own subjectivity or they don't have their own subjectivity um and so yeah that they um zoe todd mentioned that this um ontological term this time to actually focus on the non-human world and particularly non-human animals as sentient um acting as though this is something new um and talk about the ways in which indigenous peoples indigenous scholars which as you mentioned aren't all the same but many have mm-hmm. been raising uh indigenous scholars indigenous people Indigenous, indigenous communities have, have been, yeah had that view for a long time it's not anything new but there's not that necessarily that acknowledgement within that academic field as well so that's one thing that came to mind with your feedback as well yes yeah, certainly and something that you touched on you know while we aren't all the same we do share a similar relationship you know that place-based relationship to our land and so when you're talking about um non-human animals having sentiency we're we're also thinking of the sovereignty in the spirit of our mountains and our our rivers and our water systems and our other natural environment all all of those um environments around us that sustain us and give us life are also um in indigenous value respected and you know their sovereignty on the autonomy of those systems are respected as well in a way that's just not evident and and I don't want to pit you know have that binary indigenous non-indigenous or whatever but the reality is is that that it's just complete erasure at this point and what we're getting now especially in academic spaces are you know um if it's in a peer-reviewed re- article, if it's in a peer-reviewed journal, then it's all good. But a lot of that information has been extracted, um, extracted from Indigenous people, and you know the the even the relationship between researchers and Indigenous people, Indigenous people around the world are some of the most researched um, groups, you know, in academic spaces, and and so I think. I think stuff like Don't Look Up offers a really good vehicle for discussing a lot of different issues around just power relationships in general. Like I was thinking about something you were saying um, before about some industry, um, perhaps even just veganism. You know, I'm thinking of 
some of the issues with white veganism is when it when it ignores Indigenous people or when it tries to prevent Indigenous people from practising their ways of life. And I'm not saying that Indigenous people can't be vegan or don't adopt the same sorts of um, values or anything. But we need to think of meat and dairy or recognise the meat and dairy industry as colonial institutions um, and as legacies of colonialism. And so moving forward, if all we're doing is shifting, um, you know, meat to plant-based industries, then we're still not going to properly be able to dismantle some of the things that need to be dismantled, um, especially how we currently relate to to our earth, to our food, to um, extracting out of our environments, you know, all of those things. And I think that you spoke about this last episode. Um, we're not going to get there with technology. We're not going to get there with little changes, Um being able to address climate change is going to take some real big shifts in how we relate to um, our earth. And from my point of view and a lot of other people's point of views, um, indigenous people of wherever you are often offer a great blueprint of how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I might, we might come back to the, the veganism issue as well, but I just wanted to briefly just mention yeah. that um, I'll put a link up to a voicemail we heard from a listener, John, um, who, who is Maori and a vegan, was talking about sort of the reconciling those things or some of the connections that, that he makes in, in his personal practice. So, yeah, that was really fascinating, and I'll put a link up to that as well just for anyone who wants to look into that. But I, I guess just an issue that uh, I've been thinking about for a little while is – mainly because I was recently on a podcast called Sentientism, which is all about, I guess, sort of caring about all sentient beings, so not just limiting it to humans, but also, as as you touched on, like thinking about the non-human world, but I guess also discussions particularly within um from indigenous groups um although i guess i probably more experienced them within like um you know other sort of deep green kind of spaces in terms of this idea of um sometimes one critique of sentientism is sort of ignoring the non-sentient non-human world so um rocks rivers uh creeks mountains and that kind of thing and yeah, I guess, um, yeah, one one place I've experienced that sort of thinking of sort of ascribing sentience to the non-human world beyond non-human animals is, is not an Indigenous person, but sort of a deep green thinker, Derek Jensen. I don't know if you're familiar with, with him, but um, yeah, like I remember he was on one of his spoken word CDs I was listening to. He was like, the creek wanted me to jump in to, to, to the water. Um, and that's something I couldn't relate to. I definitely you know, relate to that dog wants me to pat them or, or something like that, or that pig wants to be out of that cage or whatever it may be, but not so much the non-human world. And yeah, um, the, the Sentientism podcast is also kind of grounded in, um, or Sentient's approach, uh, again, which I was recently on this podcast, is sort of based on that sort of concern for all sentient beings, but also kind of a scientific outlook or a, like evidence-based kind of outlook. And so I was just wondering that that sort of focus of, um, yeah, like I guess I almost have that hierarchy of like valuing the non-human world, but sort of putting animals above you know, creeks and mountains, that kind of thing. And I was wondering if that focus on sort of sentience to, yeah, the non-human world beyond non-human animals, do you think that requires a spiritual outlook or is there another, which I personally don't really have, but I was just curious about, yeah, just because that's something I've been thinking about recently, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's funny you ask that because at the moment, you know, as I'm, decolonizing or as I um I guess cultural narratives around Maori culture and how we relate to our mountain and our river and everything is deeply spiritual it Mm. is deeply spiritual and I don't know personally if that's what we need I don't think we need to indigenize everyone I don't think that we need to force spiritual beliefs down you know um I don't know if that is the way forward but in saying that there is value in starting to think or starting to have language. Cause I even use this. Sorry. Sorry, just my, my dog's joining on. Um, I'll just quickly mute myself. Uh, yeah. Carry on. Um, I have lost my train of thought. What was I saying? 
I still use language like stuff like personhood. Oh, we look at the personhood of the mountain, of the river. No, that's not the case. I'm using, you know, colonised language to be able to describe these things. Um, I think that there is definitely, um, you know, if we think about creation stories, if we think about the stories that we have for our areas, for our lands, that is spiritual and there's no getting around that so I actually don't know what that looks like for a non-indigenous people to be able to break down some of those barriers of like hierarchical structures because you raise a good point that's what we do need to do what does that look like though for non-indigenous Australians I'm I'm not really sure um I think as well these sorts of conversations you know aren't being had in the mainstream so maybe if we had a little bit more of them then we might be able to come up with with ways of being able to relate um but yeah no so i'm sorry i actually don't have an answer that's a a really interesting point though that you're raising yeah no no that's fine no it's just uh again something i've kind of uh been thinking about because i guess like there's the discussions um i guess like within anarchist spaces but also i think a lot of indigenous ideas are kind of consistent of breaking down hierarchies but then like are there kind of more legitimate hierarchies of of like non-human animals versus like mm-hmm. rocks and that kind of thing but uh i think yeah. though, i think though nick like it's about starting to make space for multiple truths and i don't want to sound too far off you know here but it's okay to take a Western, you know, scientific lens to things of, of wanting um, evidence-based um, practices and, and all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying we need to get rid of that, but we can also make space for there are other ways of knowing. And if we take that spirituality, the spiritual understanding of the natural environment, it might look like learning some of the um, creation stories of the place that you live. So where I live on Darawal country, you know, we have Mount Kira. Now that's a significant site for Aboriginal people. Why is it significant? It's learning that story. When I was talking about Mauna Kea before, why? Why do the Hawaiian people care about Mauna Kea? Starting to understand some of those stories, which are extremely spiritual, but it, it often you know, in Indigenous culture, the way that we learn and the way that we transmit information generationally is through story. And so there's actually a lot of really rich, you know, quote-unquote scientific knowledge within those stories. It's stuff about migration patterns. It's stuff about harvesting. When's the correct time of the year to be doing things? When or when not? um, No, when's the right time of year is what I was going to say. You know, there is actually a lot of really um, rich I guess, objective things, messages that you can get out of some of these more spiritual sort of, you know, um, Indigenous ways of knowing, I guess. Um, So, yeah, I I actually think I would really encourage people to to make space, even if you aren't particularly spiritual, um, to to start making space for some of these narratives. And Mm -hmm. because oftentimes it will really align nicely with the environment that you're in um and 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 just help you be able to relate better with with those spaces as well yeah yep, absolutely yeah sorry it was a bit of a tangent it's just kind of something that happened to come up recently but um yeah and another another sort of issue which i think is quite relevant to this which i think you've already alluded to briefly already as well is this issue of whiteness in the environmental movement that's another sort of discussion i've seen come up and um yeah i remember seeing years ago an article i think it was on the guardian about that and how yeah i think so they're looking at i think this was a u.s focus but um ethnic minorities occupy fewer than 12 percent of leaderships and 12 percent of um of jobs within non-government groups um and despite making up 38 percent of america's population so quite um under underrepresented um even compared to like other sectors like the environmental movement does kind of even worse um that was an article from 2014 i saw a 2021 report um which sort of gave some updates and said there had been a little bit of improvement but the the issues remained uh things had got slightly less white but it's still that that issue still remains just not quite to the same extent as it did um eight or so years ago but yeah I, and I was kind of thinking some of the reasons for that, um, and, and I think some things you said are very relevant as well. But I think also perhaps 
um, if you're say a you know working within a feminist organization like as a man there might be a bit of that feeling of like is this my space or not or like with an indigenous organization or whatever whereas these things where it's like it's not the group advocating for it like whether it's same as animal rights as well it's like the group is not advocate or the the environment isn't so much advocating for itself i think it then becomes this kind of neutral ground of like anyone can do it and then the sort of the colonial default is for that to be white and patriarchal male dominated as well so i think that could be perhaps part of it but um yeah is there anything you'd like to speak to about this you already have as well in terms of the movie as well but this dominance of, of whiteness within environmental spaces yeah, and I think we need to be asking questions, like foundational questions, uh, and you touched on that, of why. You know, we need to be acknowledging the deep distrust Indigenous people have with colonial institutions. And some environmental spaces are, are a part of that, are a part of colonial legacies. And so for, first off, we need to be recognising that and then wondering, you know, are these the right spaces? What do we need to do? Do we need to change them? Do we need to include... Um, look at employment and make sure that there are an an amount of indigenous or black people or you know different communities here do is that what we need or do we need to really be changing some of these organizations in themselves from the ground up too i mean the there's there's a lot in there and there's a lot that i could answer but i think that really speaking to the distrust that some places hold i mean i'm thinking of um of the UN and of Indigenous peoples' relationship with different climate summits. And knowing that at the end of the day, you know, it's hard to keep hope when you do feel like a token a lot of the time. When um, you're coming into these spaces, let's take climate summits, um, being faced with many more people who are representing, you know, coal industries and a lot of industry voices. And then they'll make a little tiny little bit of space for Indigenous people. And that might look like progress, but I'm sorry, from my point of view, that's that's not progress. That's tokenism. That's some of the things that we were talking about. So, yeah. Did that, that didn't answer your question, though. I took that <laughs> No, that's all good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I guess also... Um, yeah, I wanted to obviously hear your perspective and also just briefly bring in some of the things just from doing a bit of reading from that, yeah, again, the Twitter Twitter search I did of Don't Look Up an Indigenous, but about some of the ways in which Indigenous knowledge can be um, useful within these discussions within or essential within these discussions within um, climate change. Um, and so there was one... Um, this was an article. So again, people were kind of posting those critiques and also going like learn more with, with this. And so this was about a documentary that I have not seen, but I was just reading the sort of um, article about it, a documentary called Losing Alaska um, and talking about the ways in which in terms of adapting to climate change, um, indigenous communities have been adapting to climate change for a long time. So there's that sort of uh, knowledge that you spoke to as well. Um, and also the need for kin-centric approaches to climate change, um, indigenous belief, um, belief that both nature and people share an ecological family, ancestry, and origins. Um, and I think probably one thing that particularly stood out to me from that article, and again, we'll link to these in the show notes so people can read more themselves, um, but they mentioned the spiritual positivity presented in Indigenous communities. Um, and I remember actually I mentioned Derek Jensen. He's like an anarcho-primitivist, so sort of an anti-industrial sort of kind of uh, like deep green kind of activist. And he was saying the one thing he always hears within environmental spaces uh, is like we're f- that was the the one thing that we that we hear all the time, which I, again I can relate to, and we kind of touched on that at the start. Um, but they mentioned a UNESCO public survey that found the indigenous peoples were the demographic group with the highest level of confidence that the world can overcome its collective challenges. Um, and they mentioned the indigenous knowledge has helped humans to survive through multiple ice ages and transformations. It is based on coexistence and preservation. Is therefore key when talking about climate change. So I think that that aspect of hope. Um, 
Yeah, and again, I think, as you mentioned, those of us who perhaps don't have a spiritual worldview, I still think can really benefit from that that um, positivity because I, I think that is such a huge issue uh, when it comes to climate change, of climate change fatigue and just the sort of existential dread of the whole thing as well. So I think that was one uh, one interesting thing I read, but anything you'd like to share again in terms of what uh, the environmental movement, climate movements can um, yeah, can learn from or, or how that knowledge can benefit these movements and, and mm. be a part of these movements. Yeah, an important thing to consider because that apathy or that burnout that we all feel in these spaces is real. Um, something you touched on there is, is that hope and, and that's an interesting stat, you know, being some of the most ho- hopeful. I think personally that hope comes back to what I was saying before around the blueprints, around, you know, that hope comes because there are narratives, there are ways of doing, there are ways of living that, that we know how to do, um, you know, and and we're so adaptive. We've adapted to so many things. You talk about, you know, the Ice Age. We've adapted to colonisation. We've adapted to industrialisation. Um, we've adapted to fitting into a white way of living as well. We're an incredibly adaptive people, yet we still also have the ancestral knowledge of how to navigate our natural environment, and that is extremely comforting. Um, and it also, I guess, takes the pressure a little bit off, off your shoulders too, off an individual's shoulders, knowing that there is collective knowledge, that it's not up to one person or one one group or anything. You know, it really is a collective effort here. Um, yeah, I think I would just add that to, to what you said. And and I, I guess I also, I, I saw a statistic and it's something that globally, you know, Indigenous people comprise, I think, less than 5% of the world's population. But whether caretakers of 80% of the world's biodiversity. But then if you add another statistic that I, I, I think I saw, it was something like in terms of legal rights, Indigenous people have the legal rights to around 10% of land. And so something's not matching up, you know, mm. um, where we are responsible for a great lot of the Earth's biodiversity and that really does need to be respected and recognised and um, we need to be starting to make, going back to what your question was with, as uh, of environmental movements, you know, if, you're in, if an environmental movement isn't also fighting for land back for Indigenous people, isn't also concerning itself with things like Indigenous sovereignty, then it loses a, a bit of its legitimacy to be honest, from my point of view, you know, if you're not doing both, we should be making space to do both things at once. You are listening to Freedom of Species. And uh, in this discussion, I'm joined by a listener of the show, Sarah, giving some feedback on our show. uh, What are the most effective individual actions for the climate and also getting into broader issues around indigenous perspectives on the non-human world. And just while taking a little bit of a break from that discussion, I just wanted to quickly give a few updates on that show. Again, what are the most effective individual actions for the climate? That show aired on 23rd of January 2022. And yeah, just a quick updates from since recording that show. So on that show, we discussed the, uh, the climate mitigation gap, education and government recommendations miss the most effective individual actions by Seth Wines and Kimberly Nicholas. That was a, a scientific article we discussed on that show. And in terms of plant-based diets, they um, they ranked it as fairly high. They said it was the seventh most individual seventh most impactful individual action we could take for the environment or for the climate um, so it was above many other action actions which were considered uh, moderate impact and low impact plant-based diet was considered a high impact action um, but they actually defined plant-based diet as avoiding all meat so a vegetarian diet rather than a vegan diet so um, perhaps it would have been even higher impact like higher than the seventh most impactful action if they defined it as a vegan diet rather than a vegetarian diet 
I also want to briefly mention um, we we discussed the website countessin.org and they only ranked a plant-based diet as having about a 25% impact in terms of like, you know, roughly sort of scale out of 100. They ranked it fairly low. Um, and yeah, we were critical of that. And I was thinking perhaps that was somewhat accurate because their recommendation around that um, was just eat more plants uh, and reduce the amount of meat in your weekly diet. So if you're simply reducing the amount of meat in your diet, that probably is going to have a fairly low impact, a positive impact in the environment, but a fairly low impact. Whereas switching to a fully plant-based diet is going to have a much bigger action, again, as the Wines and Nicholas article discuss. So yeah, we'll play a community announcement and then I'll return to my discussion with Sarah this. Brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR Welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR Radical Radio. You're about to hear the final part of my discussion with Sarah, a listener of the show, talking about the importance of Indigenous knowledge uh, in addressing the climate crisis and, yeah, uh, caring about the environment and other animals generally. Um, and so just a quick reminder, we've referred to some articles and that kind of thing throughout the show. So you can find all of that in the show notes at 3cr.org.au forward slash freedom species or whatever app you're listening to this show on. Um, and yeah, if you're listening live, you can check out those notes, um, after the fact as well. Uh, and if you are listening live as well, um, after this fun part of the discussion, stay tuned for Rotations, a show featuring music from a range of 3CR presenters. Another thing I read is it was an interview with uh, Nick Estes, who's an assistant professor of American studies at the University of New Mexico. Uh, the interview was called Indigenous Resistance is Post-Apocalyptic uh, with Nick Estes. And what, one thing which really stood out to me is... Um, that critique which we've, we've touched on in the show within the environmental movement which is I wouldn't necessarily say like dominant the, the dominant argument within but definitely within more radical spaces of the problems of capitalism and the environment in terms of this focus on endless growth and yeah the continual exploitation of finite resources and that kind of sort of more fundamental um, yeah cap, capitalist critique and so I think for those in the context of climate change but also those into radical politics more generally um yeah nick estes was saying that 
you know, uh, this sort of research or just awareness of Indigenous perspectives and Indigenous history can teach us that capitalism is neither inevitable nor natural. Uh, and we have uh, remnants of a non-capitalist way of viewing the world grounded in relationships as well. So I think those who are, again, making that critique in the environment um, and also just radical politics more generally, that idea that it's not utopian. It, it has been done. It continues to be done of these these different ways of living. Um, and yeah, David Graeber is an anthropologist whose work I've I've read quite a bit of, and his his work on um, indigenous communities. He's not indigenous himself, but his research I feel like was done in a better way, I guess, because it was like, what can we learn from these communities? Things like, you know, uh, like wage labour is not inevitable. Capitalism is not inevitable rather than the perhaps stereotypical and absolutely um, has occurred within anthropology of just like, oh, this is just a novelty of studying these groups for our benefit as white people. I felt like the research was more, yeah, again, what can we learn? Like more of a two-way kind of um, thing. So I thought that was, yeah, one thing as well of, of these radical critiques of of these living examples that you know that don't necessarily be adapted as they are but there are things that things that that can be learned like how how do how have these communities responded to harm without prisons as well is another one that we've touched on the show before as well yes yeah, certainly and and I think that's when we start to see that synergy between what Indigenous thought, Indigenous values, practices have to offer with a lot of, you know, anti-abolition movements, um, anti-extractivists, anti-exploitation, um, dealing with patriarchal legacies, dealing with colonialism. You know, there's just so much there that really should, um, really aligns quite well Um yeah, there's not much more that I could add there because um, I think that you've you've really touched on a lot of the value um, and a lot of the alignment. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And one thing you touched on earlier um, was that uh, critique or, or discussion around white veganism. And, yeah, I, I guess I would maybe start off by talking a little bit about white feminism, perhaps Mm -hmm. seeing some parallels there, because I I guess in terms of how I I understand the critique of white feminism as well, it's not so much just like a white woman being a feminist. It's Mm. more about a certain kind of feminist feminism, which doesn't take into account issues of race, issues of class, et cetera. Um, So yeah, I guess in terms of extending that critique to, uh, white veganism is not so much saying you know white people shouldn't be vegan, but more looking at the um, that awareness of not looking at animal exploitation within a vacuum and seeing those issues that you mentioned, for example, of like the meat and dairy industries in countries like Australia being a product of colonialism and being introduced and and those kind of issues and kind of seeing the seeing the connections between these other issues, also issues around like class and race of, of a lack of access to, um, you know, healthy food and, and plant-based food within like remote indigenous communities, for example, and like a lack of options there in terms of those who are, um, yeah, wanting to eat that way, it'd be very difficult. So looking at those sort of issues of ba- uh, um, barriers to access, that kind of thing. So that's probably sort of the, some of the ways that I understand white bear, but I was curious to hear your perspective on it as well. Yeah, and like obviously the things that you've touched on certainly, but it's also just the immense privilege of the voices that we do hear in these progressive spaces. So I'm thinking of, um, you know, maybe radical movements that might look to uh, coming into contact with police as making their point. You know, I'm thinking of some um, environmental movements that will that will really encourage that. And that's that's all well and good. But clearly, you know, we can also recognise the relationship that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have with police in this country. And so understanding that that position takes immense privilege to just be able to, you know, um, not have to worry about the um, colonial relationship between the state and people, um, those things really shouldn't be ignored. I mean, that's something like practically practically speaking. But then when you're talking about, you know, access to um, traditional foods, access to, to, to traditional knowledge, if, if veganism 
feminism, um, any sort of progressive movement isn't taking that intersectional lens and isn't considering those power dynamics, then it's not good enough. Um, And I think that, yeah, certainly when we're talking about stuff like white feminism, white veganism, it's not that white people uh, shouldn't be doing it. It's what we get when we only listen to those white voices. In terms of feminism, you know, it's getting, securing, say, women the vote, but also making that vote uh, only accessible to people who didn't have face tattoos. And so in New Zealand, you know, Aotearoa was the first country in the world to secure women the vote, but they wrote into that legislation that anyone with facial tattoos couldn't vote. And that's obviously going to impact the Indigenous women. Um, now, that's a, that's going off a bit on on bit off track but you can start to see then what are what are the things that we come up with what are the narratives that we come up with in these spaces and when we have things that aren't considering the power dynamics that we've already spoken about then what we're going to get is stuff like white veganism yeah absolutely and there was even a talk we played on the show and and i think there was definitely good aspects of the talk which is why we played it but i remember just thinking at the time when this was someone from extinction rebellion saying that sort of encouraging people to get arrested and saying like I treated the police with respect and they treated me with respect like this with this almost positive experience mm-hmm. and I guess you know people can obviously talk about their experiences but I guess the problem is where when that that is sort of universalized and assuming that's going to be the experience with everyone coming into contact with the police and the criminal justice system generally of of kind of assuming that's like a universal experience and and yes and I, I've definitely since then as well heard those critiques of extinction rebellion kind of assuming you know going to prison for a short time is going to be this um yeah sort of fairly neutral kind of experience and can be advocated as a tactic for a movement when that obviously isn't going to include everyone because particularly for indigenous australians that could be quite deadly coming into contact um yeah even for a short time term into prison so yeah it's sort of a whether it's an environmentalism or, you know, a, an animal advocacy or whatever that doesn't sort of take into account those, those intersectional issues. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that's probably about all I have, but I want to give you a chance to have a say about anything that I haven't asked or we haven't got to that you wanted to say, um, but also if you have any, any plugs for yourself, if you have a Twitter or an Instagram or anything you'd like people to follow to yeah, hear more from you or any recommendations for yeah, books or articles or anything you mm-hmm. recommend for listeners to learn more about these issues. Mm. Thanks, Nick. There's not really anything that we haven't discussed that I want to bring up now, but I would really invite people to start looking into some of the concepts that we've brought up, you know, thinking about, and I don't know if you've already discussed this on previous episodes, but stuff like land back, um, getting to know what, what I mean by that, what that movement is, because it's not just, you know, like private property, like give me some houses or anything like that. Like it goes a lot deeper into terms of sovereignty and respecting indigenous sovereignty and stuff. So I'd really invite listeners to start having a look in to land back in your area, um, in Australia, having a look at, you know, your your local Aboriginal land council and see what they're speaking on, contact them, see what they have to say about some of the things that we've discussed or see if they have to any, any resources. Um, as we've already discussed, you know, Indigenous people aren't a monolith, but we can certainly take these sorts of thoughts into our own communities and our own areas and start to understand more about maybe even some of those creation stories, you know, what are Aboriginal stories on the land that you are, get to know some of those things too. Um in terms of me, uh, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I'm not really, don't have much of an online presence, to be honest. I've got a little Instagram page, but nothing yet. I need to get onto Twitter. I'm, done, <laughs> I'm not for my own mental well-being just yet <laughs> on there, so I don't have any shout-outs in terms of online. But, no, it's just been, um, it's been a real pleasure to be able to speak through some of these things. I think one one thing I had written down that I wanted to bring up was February 2020. Um, I was in India before everything everything happened, how amazing I was in India. And we got the opportunity to visit um, the Toda people. So they're an Indigenous village, villages in the Nilgiri Hills region of southern India. And we were able to listen to some of 
the knowledge that they have touching back on what we've discussed around knowledge around migration patterns and you know a, a wide amount of really rich knowledge and I had asked you know have you ever been approached from any of the big climate change organizations climate change researchers have have they come here and asked you about some of the things that you know and and they hadn't and it's really I think it really speaks to the lack of respect um, and the lack of value for what Indigenous people have to offer. Um, instead, in, in places like India, we're seeing that them adopting the Western conservation model. So a lot of these places, you know, are um, Indigenous people are being kicked off, kicked off their lands to be able to conserve that their, their villages, to be able to keep them human free. And that's so distressing um, that that's the direction that we're going, you know, as countries try to meet those greenhouse gas emission targets and as they try to do these things that on a global scale we've figured out this is the way we're going to get through climate change, um, what that actually means on the ground is Indigenous people are being evicted from their ancestral lands. Um, and so I just wanted to mention that example really quickly because I, I think it just sums up exactly what we've been talking about that when we're coming up with colonized white dominated you know patriarchal capitalist ways of dealing with climate change we're going to be doing harm on indigenous people and have we not done enough harm yeah yeah absolutely and yeah, the, the land back issue isn't one we've covered on the show, but it's definitely one that, that we should and, and I'd be open to covering in the future. Um, yeah, and thanks so much for coming on. I think it's really great when we get listeners to, you know, fill in some gaps of the issues we're presenting on the show. So, yeah, the really valuable um, angle and, and issue uh, to address. So, um, yeah, thanks so much. And if you've ever got anything you'd like to discuss on the show, you know where to reach me now. So it'd be great to have you back on sometime if you'd ever, if you'd ever like to. Um, and I did want to as well mention that uh, this was about 40 minutes ago, but just things go around my head. But I did want to say as well, like I, I guess I've never had anything like vaguely spiritual in terms of my, like, a bit of like a, a sort of a, a really boring kind of Richard Dawkins kind of like no religion, no spirituality, nothing like that. But I do really think that, um, yeah, the little bit I have learned from Indigenous perspectives, like including spiritual perspectives, like I can learn a lot from them, even if I don't necessarily take on that spiritual uh, aspect, we can still learn things that things that might be tied up with a spiritual outlook. We can still learn things about um, different ways of, of implementing justice, different ways of running society, different ways of... Um, Acting to the environment as well. So I didn't want to kind of be too dismissive to that. I just wanted to kind of be upfront that that's just not where I've ever come from in terms of that spiritual um, outlook. But we're going to finish with a song, Shadows, by uh, Briggs, an Australian hip-hop artist featuring Troy Kassar Daly. Um, and this song is all about colonisation in Australia, so I thought it was very relevant to the discussion. Uh, as I mentioned before, if you're interested in kind of looking up to these discussions yourselves, uh, again, I found a lot just from searching hashtag don't look up an Indigenous on Twitter. There's also discussions going on, but also links to more articles and interviews and stuff like that. And, yeah, that's it again thanks much thanks uh once again so much sarah it's been great to have you on the show thanks nick i see shadows on the hill up beside the old sawmill where my people were killed i see shadows on the hill Washes in the shallows They don't want to speak about the first battles They can only see when they're looking down a battle I see the shadows, I hear the shots I feel the spirit from the fight that never stopped They want to talk about a fight we got never stops. Where the bodies drop, they build a fucking parking lot And they call that survival Put us on a mission Force fed us bubbles They put statues on our land Just to worship false idols Cuffs on our hands Just to keep us in a cycle Blood on their hands Bodies at their feet And there's a warning They gon' hang them from the trees Name for the banks Rivers and the streets Now the shadows never leave
see shadows only here. I'm the product of resistance, I embody who survived. I'm the strength of that spirit, I'm the voice of who have died. So who the fuck are you to civilize? No, we can't rely when you recall, I hear your words, I see your lies. And in the dead of night, you can hear those babies cry. You can feel those eyes from the banks where they lay beside. Feel it in your spine when you know you're not alone. Shine bright till the shadows make it home. Get around the granite stones, they'll forever be alone. Their killers got all free, but their shadows never leave. I see shadows on the hill, beside the old song. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.